0: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Welcome back, everybody, to the seventh of the monthly expert panel discussions. Man, I'm really having a lot of fun doing these. As I mentioned before, each month I'll be hosting discussions and debates between some of the most prominent voices in regenerative agriculture, soil science, restoration land management, and more. Now in this session, I hosted a discussion on the importance of restoring proper hydrological function in a landscape, and the steps to achieving it, with my friends and colleagues at Climate Farmers, an organization working to advance regenerative agriculture in Europe. Now in this panel, I got to speak with three of the most experienced and influential educators working on this from a farming perspective. Since landscape hydrology and its proper function is often overlooked in its importance in regulating global temperature. I wanted to focus on this specifically. I was lucky enough to bring together three of the experts that have most guided my learning in this field, Zach Weiss, Nicole Masters, and Mark Shepard. Now, don't forget that if you wanna see the video of the full event, you can check it out on the Climate Farmers YouTube channel through the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, since these discussions are longer than the regular weekly episodes, I'll keep the intro short and jump right into the introductions for our panelists. How are you guys doing so far? Zach, where are you at these days?
1: I am out in Oregon right now. It's the fifth driest year on record. And uh, it's looking a little scary if we don't get some rain here. But um, the project we're working on has plenty of water, nice hydrated landscape. So it's uh, a good reminder of why we're doing this.
0: Yeah, for sure. And Nicole, where where are we finding you right now?
2: I am in beautiful Big Timber, Montana, and we yesterday we had like a day and a night of rainfall, so we're feeling pretty good today. It's beautiful out there.
0: <laughs> well, that's fortunate. And Mark, why don't yes. you give them an update for others <laughs> who are just tuning yeah. in? I'm in uh, southwest Wisconsin at New Forest
3: Farm, and we have had the uh, longest, hottest, driest June on record in um The earlier part of the month until like two days ago, actually, uh, we had, um, I think it was nine or 10 days over 90 degrees Fahrenheit. We hadn't had any rain since last fall and uh, everything was just starting to look crispy. Probably 25, 30% of the corn crop is uh, going to have reduced yields. It's all crispy on the edges and stuff like that. Well, Then just the other night, we had a three inch rainfall, huge, humongous winds, tornadoes and all that. And uh, you know, flash floods for people with unmanaged water. Um, so the the row crop farmers are on a emergency must have rain, you know, specifically on time. But like Zach had said, with with all the water we stored in the soil and what we've got stored in ponds,
0: you know, we'll be all right. Nice. Well, I'm glad to hear that. All right. So now that we've got most of our participants here, let's start with the introduction. So. As the effects of climate change have an increasing impact, one of the most severe is the erratic and unpredictable effect on rainfall, and it's quickly becoming clear that even non-brittle landscapes are becoming susceptible to both drought and inundation as precipitation patterns become less frequent and more severe. In this expert panel today, we'll discuss the ways that farmers can help to restore the healthy hydrological cycle through land management practices through revegetation, protection of riparian zones, improvement of soils, and a whole lot more. So joining us on this panel are three of the most influential voices in landscape hydrology restoration from around the world. Starting first with Nicole Masters, who is an independent agroecologist, systems thinker, storyteller, educator, and author of the book For the Love of Soil. With over 20 years of practical and theoretical experience in regenerative agriculture, She is also recognized as a knowledgeable and dynamic speaker on the topic of soil health. Next up is Zach Zach Weiss. He is the protege of revolutionary Austrian farmer, Sepp Holzer. And Zach is the first person to earn Holzer practitioner certification directly from Sepp. Zach went on to create Elemental Ecosystems to provide an action-oriented process to improve clients' relationships with their landscape. Elemental Ecosystems is an ecological development, contracting, and consulting firm specializing in watershed restoration and ecosystem regeneration. And last but not least, Mark Shepard is the CEO of Forest Agriculture Enterprises, LLC, and founder of Restoration Agriculture Development, LLC, and an award-winning author of the books, Restoration, Agriculture, and Water for Any Farm. He is most widely known as the founder of New Forest Farm, the 106-acre perennial agricultural savanna. And of course, these are only just very short introductions. Both or all of our panelists are very accomplished in their own right, but we'll be getting through some of the details of their work through examples in these questions. But to start us off, I would love to open up the discussion by asking what the potential of a landscape with a restored water cycle can do. And it seems to me like there are some great examples that are very relevant right now with the extreme climatic events that are happening in the US at the moment. Maybe starting with Mark, because you're really living this at the moment, as are the other two. Tell us about how your landscape has dealt with the challenges that you're currently experiencing much differently than some of the surrounding farms. (laughs) Well, some of the the
3: advantages, uh, of course, are the fact that whenever it rains, you know all the ponds fill up. Uh, I have uh, there's over 40 little what I call pocket ponds on this property. Um there's amphibians right now that are all chirping outside whereas around me it's almost cooked, you know, cooked to a desert. It's so so
0: dry.
3: So get like amphibians for for insect control and that sort of thing. Uh all that water spreads out discharges at specific discharge zones on on this property. I designed them out to be on the ridges which are stonier, dry, bonier uh pieces of property so the ridges are even the ridges are green right now whereas other hay fields are starting to cook on the uh, on the ridges Um, some of the it's not a downside it appears to be a downside if you're growing row crops is on wet years so two years ago and three years ago we had twice the normal rainfall Um, instead of you know 30 36 inches of rain we got like 75 inches of rain in a year so my annual crop fields, I basically didn't grow any annual crops that year. It was strictly all perennials because um, <clears throat> it was just too wet to get into the fields. Uh, I'll, take, I'll take too much rain instead of not enough rain. So the, the hydration of the landscape is key to absolutely everything. Without, without the water, your soil life doesn't wake up. It doesn't release the nutrients for your crops, your plants, et cetera. You know, your livestock, you have to pump water. Our water is 300 feet deep. If I want to run that pump, it's like a dim the lights of the nearest village. It's such a large pump to bring it up. Um, I'll hand it off to whoever's next. That's, that's part of what it is. Here's the only, there's only been three times in my life on this farm here in the past 25 years that I actually cut and sold hay. And I cut and sold hay during a drought year because I had green grass And I cut and sold hay. So in a drought year, thinking about it, if if you have green grass, you cut it as hay, it doesn't get rained on. It's a drought year. What's the price of hay like when nobody else has hay? So I got to capitalize on the fact that it had a a high hay price with the highest quality, you know, never rained on hay during the during the drought years. So we're we're, you know, moderated, the extremes get moderated here because we have. Excellent soil health because we have the water to wake up the soil life, deep rooted
0: perennials, uh, etc. Wonderful. And Nicole, tell us about some <laughs> of the conditions where you are, as well as some of what you've seen of the potential for restoring hydrological function on land to places that you visited and traveled to.
2: Mm. It's really interesting because we, um, I don't know how many thousand miles we did, like maybe. Two and a half thousand miles in the last two weeks, uh, driving through Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, South Dakota, and really, you know, seeing that picture of landscapes and total water dysfunction. Um, and unfortunately i can't say i saw any examples that were like shining lights of having hydrology that's really working except for some of the properties um, that i'm working with here in montana and you know it's really the difference between profitability and success and people staying on the land and people leaving and it is you know our ability to adapt to this is going to be the difference between um, life and death really um and so We've seen some extraordinary examples of um, water cycles that do work. And, you know, what we're currently dealing with is, Oh, you guys call um, landscapes like watersheds. We we call them water catchments. I think maybe if we changed it to a water catchment instead of a shed, maybe we'd start behaving a little differently. But it seems like these are landscapes that are shedding, like they're actively like, no, I don't want any water. I'm just trying to repel these um, every single drop. And so the game that I play with some of my ranches is like, When someone says, how much rainfall did you get? You want to be able to say all of it. And this is what we're seeing in landscapes now is how do we restore that sponge, which is going to lengthen your growing season. It's going to reduce plant stress. It's going to increase nutrition. We're seeing big outbreaks in things like grasshoppers right now. That's all about plant stress. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is the game. How do we build our soil health?
0: Nice. And Zach, why don't you tell us about some of the challenges that you're experiencing out there in Oregon?
1: Yeah, I mean, out here, it's severe drought conditions, the fire conditions are going to be unlike, you know, last year is going to be a warm up if things don't change. Um, And it really takes me back to 2019 in Australia and seeing that horrific fire season, I was there right in the middle of it. And then seeing these wonderful properties that just show the potential of restoring the hydrology. You had one Martin Royds, where the river was running dry. The town was running out of water, but his leaky weirs were still discharging water. And so he was actually able to offer up his water to the community because he was the only one that had it. You see people like Peter Marshall, who with his forestry management and hydrology management, he had the fire circle him for two months coming from every different angle and he was able to take crown fires to ground fires and then you go to India and look at people like Rajendra and you just see you know 250,000 wells restored seven rivers flowing perennial and reducing the temperature in the whole region two degrees celsius
2: wow that is so cool
0: (laughs) that is really remarkable and it It goes to show that, I mean, you don't necessarily have to do this on an entire giant landscape to start to see the benefits, Uh, although obviously the larger that you scale it up, the more that this can transform an entire, let's say, water catchment instead of watershed. So from there, let's move to ask, what are some of the first steps in determining the necessary interventions to repair the hydrology on a landscape? And I've talked to you about this, Zach, in the past. So why don't we start with you? Because you've really developed a skill set of going to a, a client's place or a piece of land and reading the landscape for those indicators that give you an insight into what interventions would be the first steps.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it really starts with the nature of the landscape itself, doing a really honest assessment of it, understanding what its natural tendencies are. From that, you can already start to see a little bit of a timeline of how that landscape has changed by reading different ways and patterns that water is moving through the landscape. You can actually sometimes see some very clear things that were done previously, like dredging of waterways, straighter, drainage systems, drain tile, all of these watershed things that are really leading to these issues. Um, And so then looking at It's always important to consider the goals of the people because if you don't, you can make this beautiful paradise that just gets bulldozed because people didn't value it or understand it. And then trying to figure out, you know, I'm oftentimes working or looking in the margins. So, so many farms around America and around the world have all of these margin lands that are too wet to really farm. They're too steep and gullies. And so they end up being the only forest left on the farm. But they're also oftentimes the points where you can do a little bit of work to restore hydrology in a big portion of the earth. Um, So it's really a matter of looking at the shape of the land, the geological consistency of the land, and then an idea of how water moves through the landscape, the yearly precipitation cycles, how much catchment areas you have. And then you can put those together to see where basically the acupuncture points are for the hydrology within the land.
0: Excellent. And Nicole, in your experience, what are some of the first things that you look for when assessing uh, the the impactful things that you can do to restore the hydrological function of a piece of land?
2: Well, yeah, some of the first things I guess around hydrology is to take, like Zach says, take a step back. And what I'm looking for, are what are the drivers that have created this current, system, why is that water system not functioning like it should. Um, We might be looking for things like, you know, is there actual water repellency, are there waxy coatings in these soils, what's happening with aggregate stability, Um, how well is the system actually infiltrating, Um, and then I have a process that I call the 5Ms to look for what is it that's the underlying leverage point behind this you know is it your mindset like are you part of the problem and generally that it, that is what we find is the biggest issue with water cycles is the human um, uh, is that your management which quite often it is, is it low organic matter? Is it a microbial imbalance or a mineral imbalance? And we kind of go to work from that perspective in terms of, all right, why is it that we now have environments that are actually literally shedding water? Um, Is it due to a lack of diversity? Um, What can we do to kind of, um, yeah, really speed up that transition? So when I'm working with someone and they're first started down this journey, I look to air before I look to water, because if your air, that air movement, porosity, all of that isn't working, then your water cycle is going to be stuffed. So we kind of have a process. And actually, there's a process even before that, which is sunlight capture. How well are we capturing sunlight in this environment? Because you know, that sunlight's going to be drawing sugars down into the soil. And if you've ever noticed this, if you have like um, a cup of sugar, white, white sugar sitting on a bench, you'll see how quickly it gets a crust on the outside of that surface. That sugar that's, that's being drawn down from the plant into soil actually draws water to it too, out of very, very dry conditions. So, um, you know, I, I'm working a lot in semi arid environments, and, and um, this is the game that we're out to achieve.
0: Wow, those are some cool insights that I hadn't considered. Actually looking at the air in the landscape was not an answer that I was, would have predicted. How about you, Mark? Uh, with all the consultancies that you're doing and certainly the range of places that you've seen, including your own farm, what have been some of the interventions that you look to do for the highest impact? Well, um, I wanted to ditto
3: everything that Zach said, everything that Nicole said. Uh, And then uh, one of the things that Zach mentioned uh, is what I'm kind of notorious for is I'm looking for the ditches on the side of the road, the edges of this and that and the other thing. What is actually surviving in this region all by itself with sheer total utter neglect? And then that tells me that if I want to have a system that can subsist there for a long period of time uh, with no care whatsoever, I should plant Species very closely related to that in systems that are very similar to it. The shape of the land has a lot to do with it as well. Where does the water? Um, where is the water captured? Uh, where does the water flow? Where does it end up uh, either infiltrating or running away? A classic example in uh, the USA, anyways, and and I know both Zach and Nicole have seen these. The USDA will come into a landscape. Some farmer has a wet spot down at the bottom of the of the of the catchment i like the idea of changing our language so it's not a watershed anymore and the usda <laughs> will put a pond down there because that's where all the water goes to well if it's down at the bottom of the landscape now it has to be very deeply. Um, after all that all that water that up um it's most expensive the most fragile the most likely to blow out because of the quantity of water that's hitting it and the only reason why that spot is a wet spot is because the water didn't soak in up there where it actually fell on the ground and it was allowed to run. So by using the shape of the land, capturing the water up high, uh, spreading the water out, soaking it in, discharging it where, where we decide to discharge it, setting it up in a pattern that makes it easy to uh, to use equipment with, <clears throat> all of those things are, are part of the system. But the, the most significant probably with with uh, what what our team does is looking to as closely mimic the uh, natural ecosystem um, as closely as possible, and substituting uh, can be harvested for human food, animal feed, uh, and then use animals as the managers of the system. So we're doing um, ecosystem restoration with agriculturally productive species. We're not necessarily, um, matter of fact, we don't we don't plant orchards. Uh, and we're not doing purest ecological restorations where you use herbicide to get rid of every you know, invasive. We're making agriculturally productive landscapes that are modeled after natural ecosystems.
0: Amazing. Um, and since you've worked in all types of places, different climates, different parts of the world, have you started to notice any patterns of what the common degradation factors of? I mean, basically, so many times the problem's are better solved by removing the damaging element or or the practice that is causing the damage rather than adding some sort of band-aid feature. So what I guess what I'm trying to say is what are some of the most damaging practices of a landscape or or their features that should be removed before other interventions can actually be effective? start
3: start well, I guess I'll start with yeah yeah go for it is open uh,
0: for for what
3: I've seen around the world and you do the historical research It has everything to do with annual crops, agriculture. Now I'm not saying that we get rid of annual crops, agriculture altogether, but I'm saying we have to learn how to do it radically different. We have to improve the soils. We have to capture what rainfall comes in, soak it in uh, and minimize the annual agriculture that we do. um, Simply because every time we're tilling the soil we're oxidizing organic matter um, off gassing into the atmosphere, the, the, ammonia, the nitrous oxides that are going in the atmosphere and on and on and on. And just the wind erosion. Oh my gosh, last time I was in Oregon, um, they were harvesting wheat simultaneous with uh, all these forest fires all around. And you couldn't see, you literally almost could not breathe. And it was at the same time that they were preparing the, um, the soil underneath hazelnut groves, which are orchards. They planted on level flat ground and they remove every speck of vegetation from the soil. Uh, aggressively every single year, and it's all this—all of our topsoils just going off into the atmosphere, and then any natural ecosystem that was around because it was too crisp um, and too brittle, burnt—you know—burnt up all around us. This kind of a, our our entire method of doing agriculture has been a disaster for the past ten thousand years.
0: Yeah, it's intense. Uh, Zach, what about yourself? What are some of the damaging elements and practices on landscapes that you've seen that need to be addressed before solutions can be implemented?
1: Yeah, I would say really ditto to everything Mark just said. Um, And for me, I would break it down into the humanity has really changed how water is moving through the air and how water is moving through the ground. We've changed how water is moving through the air by getting rid of all the forest that dominated the planet, that seeded the clouds, both with the moisture itself that's required for 50% of the precipitation we receive, but also with the hygroscopic microorganisms, which coalesce humid hazes into clouds and then rain, um, which is then also changing weather patterns, which is changing how much of the water from the ocean is moving through the earth's continents. So we're really, Destroying the air water cycle or vegetative man, our vegetative destruction, you could say, which I think agriculture is the biggest thing there. Um, agriculture and forestry, even our forestry practices are atrocious all around the world. But then we're also changing how water is moving through the ground with all of these drainage systems, with all the city infrastructure, with all of the roads that exist, all our water structures with attached drainage to carry the water even further away. Um, And I think it's important to recognize that there was a time when this served us, when the earth was a really lush, beautiful place with water landscapes all over the place and we were defecating in the streets. We didn't want standing water around our civilizations because of disease vectors and all these other issues. We're doing the same water management even though that doesn't suit us anymore. And now it's actually causing all of these issues of flood, of drought, and of fire. Um, So, you know, the drainage of the water in the ground, a lot of which was actually to create our agricultural areas, we drained the wetlands to release the best soils. Um, And then the drainage of the water cycle through the air through manipulating the vegetation, and changing how water moves through the continents.
0: Mm. And Nicole, what about from your experience?
2: not quite ready to poop in the streets again zach though if that's an option Um, (laughs) i'm ready
0: i'm I'm ready Um, to make that change.
2: um what i mean so many of our practices really put microbiology on a starvation diet and you know anything involving bare soil so if that's cultivation or spraying out or overgrazing, desertification all of whatever's creating those kind of practices needs to shift and um, I really point to Marx, what he was drawing forward in terms of monocultures, but just thinking in terms of diversity, like everything needs to be considered in terms of how do we increase diversity here? How do we increase that mosaic factor um, in landscapes? Because most landscapes, like if you go to you know early colonial kind of accounts, were mosaics it wasn't like we just have solid forest you know which might have been because there's fires there's ruminants there's all sorts of things moving through landscapes so how do we kind of look to to recreate that and for me it's the micro that's influencing the macro um and it's that how do we get just that sponge re-established so what are the things that are undermining it and if you think every single microbe in the soil is made up of at least 70% water. You know, they're a huge component of just how water is moving through the soil is with microbiology or even how fungi will bring uh, water from much further down in the soil profile up to plants. But it won't do that if you've undermined it by having bare soil or cultivating or pretty much everything in our toolkit of modern agriculture is what's led us to this point. And I think that's what we're seeing globally is this wake up of, this is probably one of the shortest exoduses into a type of agriculture. I mean, we're really only maybe 120 years, 140 years. And it's like, that didn't work. I mean, many of what we saw in China or Mayan civilizations, there were thousands of years with their agricultural innovations. And this one really has been a very short, sharp jerk on the reins.
3: And, and part of how we get the diversity and part of how we, we get the, all the different soil life and the different depths of rooting, et cetera, and it's a tool that we rely on heavily, break up the field sizes, et cetera, is the agroforestry techniques. I see the agroforestry techniques as kind of like this bridge between the, the agriculture of eradication and then the agriculture of restoration. And then when we get to uh, a silvopasture system, which is an agroforestry system with all these woody plants and animals in it, to me, that seems like the uh, that's, that's the
1: home
3: run that's the whole
2: do you think mark like a lot of the landscapes like if you think of coming through colorado wyoming south dakota they wouldn't they didn't never really had a lot of trees so do you think yeah tell that, me about that well
3: well that that uh that goes to a uh a regionally appropriate specifically applied set of techniques there would be yeah. fewer trees in the more arid areas more trees in the moister more humid areas uh, you know, there's, there's trees in Greenland and uh, up at, almost at the North Pole They may be only willows about this tall, but they're, every single continent has, has woody plants on them, period. And so mm-hmm. to imitate that distribution pattern with our agricultural crops, and if we can go to our agricultural crops being the perennials, all of a sudden we have a perennial ecosystem that's producing food, fuels, medicines, and fibers yeah so yeah maybe in in arizona for example the trees would be further apart they'd obviously be different species and i think it was in in arizona that they they dug up a mesquite and they kept chasing the roots down and at 412 feet deep they decided it was too dangerous to keep digging and the root (sighs) was still the roots were still the thickness of a pencil so all of this talk about like perennial
0: grasslands are so wonderful they hold the soil together dang you can't beat a tree But certainly that uh, location-specific context and doing a proper inventory, not only of what grows well there, but also what grew there historically. And like you do for agricultural landscapes, finding related plants that have some sort of economic value that can take the place of less productive species, right? And you have to also project future and do
3: some uh, assisted migration and you know, the New Forest Farm here, the southwest corner of it has species that are more adapted to Colorado, for example, than they are in Wisconsin, because I want something that can handle cold and dry because it, it gets both here. Uh, and then the northeastern corner of this property, we have a lot more of the way further north plants. So we have the genetic resources on site. We're constantly breeding and selecting for the varieties that actually thrive in this system here. And if we have to go, you know, more colder, hotter, wetter, drier, we've got the species on board um, and we're ready to put them in the ground. Time for time for big, beautiful experiments uh, with, you know, PhDs and stuff like that. We still need it, but dang, to wait for more research, the time is over. You know, we know what to do. We have all of the tools at our disposal. We just got to get stuff done. I almost said the S word stuff. <sighs>
1: I think, too, to build off of what both you guys are saying, it's the trees and the fungi are responsible for bringing so much moisture up from down deep. And I've seen a lot of landscapes that used to have trees in the past where you go four feet down and there's actually water in the whole landscape, but none of the plant roots can reach it because the trees used to be the ones that had the deep roots to bring it up. So, you know, in areas like Yakima, where you look and it's like, oh, man, this is a desert trees could never survive here. There actually were. It was a dotted landscape with trees on all of the braids of the earth, all the creeks and the streams and the rivers. They were actually actively helping move that water up into the higher horizons as well so that the grasses and other species could utilize it.
2: Yeah. And then if you think about the impact that we're seeing in Western Australia from the removal of trees, because that's an open savanna land that had a lot of, you know, big old mama and papa trees, is that that's totally changing that water dynamic in the soil now. So we're seeing, I think, the salinity of 50 million acres in Western Australia because that whole water cycle is disrupted because the trees... Potentially, you know, that they're using that water in that top zone without the trees that's just being sucked up by the sun and drying conditions and evaporation. And uh, here comes the, the salts. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's that whole landscape context. Have you guys seen that new research about how trees are growing faster because of the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere? I know I threw this to you last time, Zach, about it seemed to me like I've gone to so many places where um, standing forests are dying. And if that's in Australia or New Zealand or here, um, are you guys seeing something similar like that happening? And I'm wondering, like, is it turning to a grassland ecosystem that can be adapted to low rainfall? Just to throw
1: it. I see a lot of dying forests most of the ones that I see, I really look at as nature is actually trying to help because it's not a forest, it's a tree farm. Um, yeah. So most of the most of the dying forests that I see, I would really say are more tree farms and are, whether being managed actively or not, they're having the structural issues of a lack of diversity. And so all of the different species of nature are saying, hey, I can help this, I'll kill a bunch of these dug firs, and then we can start to have a more diverse <laughs> forest but we don't look at it as them helping us.
2: No, see that's not happening in New Zealand. These are diverse native forests that are, that are dying. And, and as, as yeah. far
3: as the, like, the uh, full closed canopy forest is concerned, every single part of the USA, except for some places down in, um, in uh, Florida uh, and most of uh, Central America was all savannah, semi-open grassed forested areas going all the way back to the dawn of woody species. Um, so, so that has to be said, as trees and grass have co-evolved in most of the places around here. And then uh, the die-offs that we're seeing here, if you think in the last hundred years, we had white pine blister rust that I, has always been here because there've always been currents and pines coexisting with each other, but it only blew up after we eradicated the massive pineries. Then there was um, uh, Dutch elm disease, it was chestnut blight, uh, gypsy moth, and now we've got the emerald ash borer, like Michigan's lost, you know, half, almost half of the, the trees in its forest because of, of mm-hmm. these non, uh, non-native pests and diseases. Now in the long mm-hmm. scope of history of time, that's not a problem. You know, nature will heal mm-hmm. from that, but short term, if part of your economic livelihood is depending on these forests as a resource, and the certain Native American tribes in uh, the Great Lakes region, they identify themselves by the ash tree because that's their, all their baskets, their, their building materials, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you do when the basis of your culture disappears because some bug from somewhere else? And I looking at the comments over here. One of the uh, folks had mentioned the megafauna, uh, the, whether you were in the Great Plains where you had uh, mammoths you know, the, the Pacific coast where you had th- like three different kinds of mammoth, a couple different kinds of, um, mastodons here in the, the humid East, it was mostly, uh, mostly mastodon. There were always elephants around here, knocking the trees over and eating the tops off of it. Most of the savanna species are, are adapted, created, adapted, evolved, or however you, they got here to be pushed over and then sprout back up from the roots whether it's a storm that pushes it over or, a, or an elephant that pushes it over, there's a depression, there's a mound, and there's organic matter mixed with mineral soil. That is the number one um, microtopography form all across the planet, are pits and mounds. So when we're designing systems, and I'm looking right behind Zach, and I see some pits and mounds right behind him, and Sepp was a, you know, he's a notorious, you know, terrace mound builder, whatever, um, other people accuse me of being a swila, if I can be so Australian. Swila. Yeah, that
2: sounds very Australian. So you put
3: your <laughs> sorry about that. So you have your your swales, uh, USDA terraces, whatever. You have a water conveyance channel and a mound to capture that water. So we're lining them up to direct that water where we want, specifically over to some of those ponds right behind Zach's heads. So are we am I seeing forests accelerating in growth? Uh, I don't. Don't have the data on that that um, says that. Uh, and I'm seeing just a tremendous amount of forests in trouble. Now we have the uh, woolly adelgid on the uh, hemlocks and east, all kinds of outbreaks of, of pests and diseases in forestry. And did you know that um, human beings have yet to eradicate one of them? We've, we've, we've lost trying to fight against it. We've lost. So why don't we work with it, understanding that these new These new climate conditions, new rainfall patterns and new storm patterns and new insects and diseases, these are the new disturbance patterns that are arising. We now have to adapt ourselves to the current reality by having a relationship with our landscape and understanding how ecology itself actually works and applying that to what we do uh, raising raising crops and livestock.
0: Well, so there have been a couple of questions and even some short mentions already about the risk of salinization of soils. Uh, Would anybody like to talk about how that can start to be reversed after maybe addressing some of the risks of or the causes of how it starts in the first place? Nicole?
2: Yeah, so uh, a lot of the areas that I'm working on that have, you know, big salinization issues are often cropping. So we have more uh, opportunities, I guess, in large scale cropping. And these are really flat lands as well. But, um, and these guys are looking at um, alley, you know, introducing alley species into cropping to some degree, but what they're doing is they can either put down things like a humic acid or vermicast or compost extract. So it's the carbon or the humic fraction that, that's the antidote in a lot of ways to, um, to sodium. So we're seeing some, some great um, shrinking of those saline seeps through the addition of carbon based materials. That's, that's been phenomenal. But I think to yeah, getting trees back into the landscape and thinking, you know, uh, what I'm seeing actually it's interesting is that a lot of rangeland is actually deficient in sodium. And the reason for that is very old landscapes have leached out and, um, put that into these depressions. So we see areas that have gone alkaline and it's like, well, where did that sodium come from? You know, a lot of it came from landscape that's leached out. So um, I'm always looking for addressing that at the root cause. And then, um, yeah, we
3: classic It's uh, the soil biology. You think of every single living cell, it's just a bag of salt water. You want to get rid of that salt, put
0: it into into biology.
2: Amen to that, Mark.
0: (laughs) So one of the ideas or the suggestions that was in here was the idea of putting organic matter on top of the soil as a remedy for salinization. Is that something that you found works fairly well? I mean, it may be somewhat impractical on very large landscapes, but could that possibly kickstart the biology that can digest those salts?
2: Um, not if you're not really addressing the underlying cause, and you think of a lot of these landscapes where they, they are issues, if you just throw compost on top, it just desiccates and flows away anyway, like the microbiology aren't necessarily going to um, get down into the soil, so finding ways to protect that if you were putting carbon down, so direct drilling, putting it down with seeds, um, coating seeds, uh we've had really good success with bale grazing so the effect of you know just putting bales into the middle of some of these areas and allowing livestock to kind of incorporate and trample and massage that soil a bit to get organic material in there but i think from a cost you know return on investment like how long would you pay that off you know the bale grazing or even composts um, you want to have really good compost and most of the compost i see people applying is absolute garbage so just being really careful like if you're gonna put some of that stuff on is it is it beautiful you know microbially diverse and alive um, and finding ways to ensure that it's not going to die when you put it out
3: I'll, I'll address that also as well is that I'm totally into minimizing inputs and what I'm going to do is I'm going to use three people that aren't here as an example If we go to Gary Zimmer, he's talking about mineral balance, mineral balance, mineral balance, mineral balance. You can go ahead and get your cations perfectly balanced. And if you don't have enough water to light up the microbial life, it's not going to light up. And you might have the wrong microbial life there when it does get rain and it goes in a direction that you don't want. So then there's folks like Elaine Ingham. It's all about the bugs, the bugs, the bugs. It's the soil life, soil life. Just put this tea on. But if you put them there, they don't have anything to eat. They're going to die. Just like like um, Nicole just said. Well, then there's the gay brownies. Well, it's all about the cover crop smorgasbord. You put a zillion different cover crops down, but if you don't have the soil life there, and if you don't have the right mineral balance there, and if you don't have the water there in the first place, my personal opinion is that the water precedes everything. If we don't have water, we can't grow plants. If we don't have plants, we can't feed animals. We have to manage that water, rehydrate the landscape, then we can adjust our mineral balance, our soil life, and our cropping um, mix. And then I'll add this fourth guy who happens to be here is is me. If we're mimicking the natural plant community types of that region and that area, selecting the food producing species from it will have the best chance of success when we do all of those things. There's not one true answer here. It's, It's all about the big system, the big ecological system of this planet.
1: Yeah, I think it's just classic human reductionism to want to just distill it down to, oh, well, we just need to do this one thing when nature has never and never will work that way. It is this diverse, interconnected web, and you can't just pull out one piece and study it in isolation and learn anything about the whole. Um, So, yeah, I just echo that really anything to do with ecology The interconnectedness is the resilience of that ecosystem. And so you can't just pull out single elements. You really have to look at it as a whole.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah which is, I mean, which is why context is where it all comes down to. And I kind of run from the room screaming if anyone's got a single answer to anything. And it it is really interesting because you see these beautiful examples that do re- work really well in that context. And you've mentioned some of them, Mark, and then people try and take that exact program and transplant it and put it on their place at huge expense and often a whole lot of disasters. Um, so yeah, for me, it starts with, like compaction is the first place before water for me. So it's like trying to figure out what, what is it with compaction? And I know you guys like your iron or machinery to kind of address some of that, but it's like, well, what's the underlying cause of that? Was that something I have done with my management? And if I, you know, open that soil up and what is going to be able to get in there? Or was it something else that's going to contribute to that, to that water cycle? So um yeah, I always get really curious about that whole ecosystem
3: function. And most of the compaction issues that that I encounter are caused by previous farming practices. And that's mm-hmm. where, you know, yeah, you can do it purely biologically through time, but you can get it faster, you know, a lot of results if you use steel, appropriately applied steel. Notice, <laughs> appropriately applied. It's got to be context-specific. Yeah. A great example, actually, is Dakota Cohen up in... Um, uh, Alberta, he went to a workshop of mine and immediately said, oh, I, I got to put ponds way up over here. So he went and he dug like a $30 million pond and it didn't fill because he was putting it out of context within the scope of his landscape. And it wasn't until later that he, it dawned on him that I wasn't giving a uh, a prescription. I was getting a set of principles. We follow these set of principles and I, I loosely follow the whole yeoman scale of permanence on what i decided to do first and i'll grant you the point on um you know breaking compaction to get the water to go in because what good is actually water if it doesn't soak in we can actually make things worse if you have water ponding in a particular area you can start it to into a, a, a cycle of anaerobic collapse and you're going to go acidic and formaldehydes and then it'll be 20 years before you get crops to grow there again so once again, it's a, it's a systematic systems approach. So if there's one true answer, Nicole, and please don't run out of the room, it's <laughs> everything.
2: The only thing that's going to make me call run call out of the room is you calling me an Australian <laughs> again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> New Zealand, New Zealand. Very the
3: Australians different. were prisoners. That's right. You, you guys
2: were free. That's right. <laughs> we were free. Yeah, we didn't steal bread buns from anybody. <laughs> Well, so look, it sounds like we're talking a lot or
0: continuing to refer to the scale of permanence. And I know that that is a framework that a lot of people continue to use and that Mark has expanded upon on his book, uh, Water for Any Farm. Let's just address some of those, because starting with that land form, really the first element that we can start to affect on a piece of land, busting up compaction, putting in key line earthworks or ponds or catchment systems, is that really where you would always start? Or are there simpler interventions, especially for people with lower budgets or perhaps who don't have access to professionals who can perform some of those services for them that can make a difference without having to affect the landform itself?
1: I think I'd love to jump in there. I think one big piece, and Nicole mentioned this as well, um, that you know I think Darren Doherty brought to the Keyline Scale of Permanence is the climate of the mind. Because I think that mindset and management you got to look at those two things first because you can move all the earth in the world. And if you don't have the mindset in line with the landscape, and you don't have a management in line with the landscape, it's not going to go well and you're going to cause more harm than good. Um, so I would say even taking it back to just that, you know, what am I doing on this landscape? What are my goals and what are my actions on the landscape and what is are the responses that the landscape gives me as a result of those? really a careful consideration of that because that's oftentimes like you were saying earlier just to stop doing the harm can do more benefit than all of the big actions that you might take after you stop doing the harm
2: yeah i really encourage people to do like basic infiltration tests and just look at you know what is happening with compaction or water movement through soils and then going back to well what is it that created that was that You know, is it just mismanagement or is it that low organic matter? Is it biology or minerals? And so we find if we address that underlying driver then, so for instance, working on an operation that had 60% magnesium, I am not going to go and try and address that magnesium minerally like it'll cost you a fortune, but these soils with high mag become super tight. So all that we did was actually drill gypsum, a little bit of gypsum down with the drill when we were seeding and that just flocculated and opened it up around that root zone and then that plant was able to open that soil up. And that's where, you know, you could use a cover crop in that instance with a little bit of gypsum just to flocculate and open it up. Um, But if it's a biological issue, is it just very high bacterial soils and we see these with the waxy coatings or surface crusts that these soils are not functional. What is it that I can maybe do to stimulate um, other types of microbiology? So that, that could be your compost or your bale grazing, um that again it could be cover crops they could fulfill on that so we're always looking for what is it that's actually driving this because otherwise you're going to end up in a situation where that compaction happens again and you know working in very different ecotypes and very different rainfall zones and very different mineral kind of considerations i find that there's not a one you know a one silver bullet answer to to this
3: i love being on panels with people who give all my answers it's perfect
1: (laughs) (laughs) I would add into that one piece I really like people to consider as far as just a first step on the land is what impact are you having on the water cycle? We all have homes. We all have roads. We might have a lot of roads. We might have more drainage. You know, just before we talk about having a benefit impact on the water cycle, we need to gain neutrality. Um, And oftentimes we're nowhere close to neutral. So looking at those impacts and looking at how you might directly offset them. You know, is it as simple as a rain garden catching the gutters off your building so that that water that used to infiltrate into the earth can infiltrate into the earth? Same for off of driveways or parking areas or anything like that. It's just a real easy win to look at what is my impact on this land and how can I offset it?
3: I I like like your whole... Uh, topic where you're going at with that that zach and just a couple of things especially with people in residential areas uh be aware of the fact that if you soak water into the soil it's going to go into your basement and if not your basement somebody else's so be careful do context specific approaches no matter where you are check things out Um, thank
1: you very important point there
3: (laughs) and (laughs) and then one of the things that that you know as a as a a restoration ecologist is we're looking at a target uh ecosystem or target plant community type so by looking at the ditches and the edges on the side of the road we find out where this place wants to go all by itself we preload it ahead of time or we do floristic relays where we start with this species introduce the next one and the next one the next one and we have a target ecosystem of where it is actually going and that's informed by what you learn on the ground what, you know, what is our neutral state as a human being? How do I interact with this land? Uh, and then um, design the whole land use pattern to enhance that, that process. Um, and one of the things that I think should happen, there's probably some people who are listening uh, that are into, that like live in suburban areas. If you're in the USA and you're in a suburban area, start attempting to pass laws that say that every single home single family home in the usa it can heat itself it can power itself and can provide its own water from the ambient environment period it's a design consideration And if our homes don't heat themselves cool themselves uh power themselves and capture their own water we have designed things wrong and until we've done that uh you know, that's the work that has to happen. And if you're going to buy a home or, or build a new home, if you do it any other way besides heating itself, powering itself, cooling itself, providing its own water,
2: you've screwed up. Stop. I imagine you guys have read Michael Mobb's book, The Sustainable House, which I think was written in 1999. And uh, he's transformed his community in Sydney through that very thing. Like, how do you capture, how do you, totally close the loops externally or internally, which is so phenomenal. And I think it would revolutionize cities right now, but I think there's almost an agenda to stop this. They looked at this in Auckland city of what would be the cost to actually put in these huge pipelines um, from a river that was pretty far away to pump that into Auckland city. And it would have been much cheaper to put a water catchment system on every single house and not be compromising that river, but you know, they went to the river They're not going to be like empowering people. You can't be off the grid now, Mark. (laughs) Like, how can we control you now?
0: (laughs) So many good points here. I would love to go in deep. This is my old specialty is designing natural homes with like full functionality and how they integrate in with their local ecosystems. Um, But since we're getting closer to the listener questions, there's one more I'd like to ask before we start to hand it over and is actually voiced very well by uh, Tony here. But the idea is, what are some of the common misconceptions and misunderstandings that you find that a lot of people have that are somewhat common, either in in cultures around the world or just general understandings of agroecology that you'd like to try and dispel here or sort of correct the record on in order to give a better understanding or, (laughs) I guess, get over some of these things that hold a lot of people back with their management of water? I just have to jump in quick. And it's the most frustrating to me is that most
3: people don't believe this. They don't believe it. And then they want you to pencil it out. So it pays itself back with 55% return on investment in two years. Sorry, we're talking about, you know, keeping our own personal financial ship afloat, staying alive, food, fuels, medicines, and fiber ecological system health. So we can have a healthy planet to live on F the cost. I'm not saying go broke doing it we can do it in ways that don't cost a ton of money, but you've got to do it.
0: Yeah. You think it costs a lot now, try not having water in a couple of years and how much (laughs) it costs to import it.
2: And, And we're already seeing that now. And I was, um, doing a workshop in Western Australia and Alana McTiernan actually came and opened the workshop she was the minister for agriculture in Western Australia and her message was you know if we're not adapting these practices and regenerating landscapes then there will be no agriculture in Australia in the next 10 years like she was really like and it's like I go and do workshops for large-scale conventional cropping guys and the depression and the it's almost like uh, that that mindset and the ability to even think outside the box is so degraded because of mental and, and physical well-being that I, I really see the landscape reflecting what's happening with with people. So it's like start with yourself, start eating well, start looking after your body. And then what becomes possible? Because I see people that are no longer able to take any different actions. They're just going to do what the spray supply guy does. And they're not going to buck the system because it takes a lot of energy. And probably the other thing I hear is like, it's not possible here. Um, It's all very well that Mark can do it in his landscape. It's so easy. You know, Or it's it's easy in Western Australia. Or, I mean, I hear it from Australians. You know, New Zealanders can do it. But I hear in New Zealand, oh no, it only happens in Australia or America. And it's like, we will ignore what's happening right in front of us instead of going, actually, I, I wonder what is possible here? Like where's the curiosity in agriculture? And that's what I'd really like to see lit up again. It is like that mind fire. Let's get excited.
1: Yeah. I would totally agree with that. And building upon that, I'd say too, um, one of, I have three misconceptions that I really bother me. One being people thinking, Oh, that doesn't affect me here mm-hmm. until the fire is at their doorstep. They are not thinking about water. Um, So that's a really big one. Another one that just really bothers me is people do not connect pumping out of the aquifers with a degradation of the hydrology. It's like, oh, that water's free. It's just in the ground for me to pump out as quick and fast as I possibly can to use however I want. And whatever that flow rate on your well, which is the max that well can support, that's what I should be pumping all the time. Um, So that's one that really bothers me. And then a, a third one is that the ecosystems don't have an impact on climate, which we know very much so they do. You change the ecosystem of a place, you change the precipitation of a place, you change the drought and fire and flood regime of a place. And these are really all direct consequences of our actions. We just don't understand that puzzle yet.
0: There you have it, everyone. Now, as great as it is to include multiple experienced perspectives on the topics that we covered in this panel, it's impossible to include the full range of opinions and viewpoints out there. And that's why I'm inviting you to join the growing community building regenerative skills to use in their daily lives. It'll always be free to join. All you have to do is follow the links to our discord on the homepage of the regenerative skills website. The benefit of joining through our Discord channel is that unlike social media platforms that mine your personal data and manipulate your feeds based on algorithms to sell you more junk, I founded these channels purely for knowledge, skill, and story exchange between the people who care to make their worlds better for everyone. Now this week's question, which we'll be discussing on the forum is, are the biggest hydrological challenges on your land due to drought, or flooding, or both? And is there a way that you could be storing more of that water for more even use throughout the season? What would change on your land if healthy hydrological function were restored? Now working from the perspective of water and how it moves from the cycles through an ecosystem can unlock insights and breakthroughs into the patterns that govern life through the whole system. Now though I've done many interviews on this topic in the past, it's something that I'll continue to dig into and learn more about because of just how important it is to the restoration of our planet and climate. Now don't forget you can also help to guide the panel discussions that I've got planned for the future by suggesting topics and guests on the Discord forum too. Now that's our show for this week. Until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future and I'll be right by your side along the way.